Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Dark Poutine. This is Mike Brown. And Matthew. And Matthew Stockton. How are you today, Matthew Stockton? Very good. How are you? Uh, I am not too bad. Not too good either. No, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. last episode, we heard about the murder of 61-year-old retiree and beloved mother, grandmother, and recent great-grandmother, Diana Russell. On February 22, 2002, after her car was found abandoned in out-of-the-way Boston Bar, her family became concerned. Diana was not answering her phone and no one knew where she was. She was later found by police in the basement of her townhome. Diana had been beaten, hogtied, raped, and then strangled. The number one suspect was no stranger to the family. He was Ronald Leal Fowler, an ex-boyfriend of Diana's eldest daughter, Michelle, and father to that daughter's two-year-old son, Brandon. After killing Diana, Fowler had fled in her car, but after it became hopelessly stuck after a freak winter mud and snowslide, he abandoned it and hitchhiked to Vancouver. Fowler was arrested there, after the truck driver who dropped him off in the lower mainland called police about the sketchy guy who'd ridden with him. Fowler, who'd illegally walked away from a halfway house in which he'd been living, claimed amnesia due to a drug and alcohol binge at the time. 
He denied responsibility for Diana's murder and maintains that position to this day. Diana's remaining family was left to pick up the pieces of their broken lives. This crime is still a painful wound for them, ripped open by Fowler's every appeal and applications for parole. You're listening to Dark Poutine, Episode 236, The Murder of Diana Russell, Part 2. As I mentioned at the beginning of the first episode in this series, this case was brought to my attention by Diana Russell's grandson, Colin Luxinger. He was 12 at the time of his grandmother's murder. Colin posted in our Facebook group, The Yumberyard, about his feelings around recent developments in Ronald Fowler's applications for graduated return to society after the killer had been in prison for more than 20 years. I reached out to Colin, who also put me in touch with his mother, Valerie McPherson, Diana Russell's youngest daughter. Valerie kindly shared with me articles she'd collected and most valuably writing she'd done about her experiences and feelings after her mother's death, as well as an autobiographical bit of writing done by Diana Russell before her murder. We heard that in part one. I have made small edits to the writing for clarity's sake, but the facts therein remain intact. Colin Luxinger kindly agreed to a phone conversation with me, which I've edited, and you'll hear in the second part of this episode. To give us an insider's view from the family of a murder victim, Valerie McPherson wrote at length about her experiences with the Canadian court system. She has shared what she's been through over the past 20 years during Ronald Fowler's subsequent arrest, pre-trial, trial for the first-degree murder of Diana Russell, appeals, and parole applications. I want to thank Colin and Valerie for their candor and for sharing with me their excruciating experiences so we can in turn share them with you. Our hope is, as with all of the cases we cover, that these two episodes will stand as a memory of Diana Russell and what happened to her. Valerie didn't have to make the trek to Kelowna for Ronald Fowler's pretrial. It was determined that the proceedings would be piped via closed-circuit TV to the courthouse in Fort McLeod where Valerie lives. It was the first time a virtual hearing had taken place in Fort McLeod. Valerie felt nervous going into the courthouse, regardless of her tough mental attitude, years of medical training, and distance between her and Ronald Fowler. She knew she'd be facing for the first time since it had happened, virtually at least, the man who'd killed her mother. Valerie passed through the courthouse metal detectors and told sheriffs present who she was. Valerie was then ushered into a room with a TV screen and a speaker. A court officer was in the room with her during the whole ordeal. Valerie was not only there to watch, she was also there to testify. She wrote, quote, I'm a witness to nothing. I'm a daughter who lives in a different province. The defense wanted me so they could ask me questions. Ha ha ha. They don't know me very well. End quote. The TV flickered to life and there was the courtroom in Kelowna. Her mother's killer was clearly visible on the screen. She wrote, his ugly, mean face made me want to vomit, end quote. There were easy background questions from Fowler's defense team. They'd not bargained on Valerie's responses, though. Valerie wrote, I answered a simple question from the defense regarding my relationship with my mother. After answering, I said under my breath, that's too bad. What's too bad, the defense attorney asked. And Valerie's response was, it's too bad that Fowler's child will grow up knowing what his dad did to his grandmother, 
end quote. She wrote, After I said this, Fowler took a fit. He was mad and screaming. Two court officers had to restrain him, and I watched the whole thing through the TV. They dragged him out of the room he was in. It was lovely. After that, the defense didn't have any more questions until the real trial. On the short drive home, I felt good that I upset the evil animal who raped and tortured mom. End quote. I'm picturing her like holding out the microphone, like total mic drop. Dun, 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 yeah. dun, dun, like boom, mofo. Take yeah, that. Exactly. Good for her. Yeah. I'm glad he got upset. Yeah, all. that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing. I am glad he got upset about he that. deserves it. She knew right where to poke. Boom, just did it. Yeah, and got him. Good for her. The court proceedings were beset by delay after delay from various pretrial motions. Fowler's murder trial was set to begin in 2004, but was delayed when Ronald Fowler fired his legal aid attorney, Lauren Wise. This required a new defense attorney to be brought up to speed so Fowler could receive a fair trial. The trial began in mid-October 2005. The Crown painted the picture. Diana had been last seen on February 21, 2002. From an article by reporter Kelly Hayes on castanet.net, published on October 18, 2005, comes the Crown's timeline for their opening statements. Quote, On February 22, Russell's car was involved in a single-vehicle accident on the Trans-Canada Highway near Boston Bar. The Crown says Fowler was driving the vehicle. Russell's purse, including her identification, was found in the car. On February 23, police went to Russell's home, knocked on the door, but received no answer. On February 24, police got a call from Russell's daughter, Michelle, who was distraught after finding out through neighbors that police had visited her mother's home. She provided a key to police who entered the residence. Inside, they found Russell's partly clothed body in the basement underneath some mattresses and furniture. The Crown said that the evidence would show that Fowler hogtied Russell and sexually assaulted her. The Crown adds that it has DNA evidence to prove its case. The trial was expected to last up to eight weeks. The Crown gave the jury a video tour of Diana Russell's townhouse from an article by Kelly Hayes on castanet.net. Quote, The video was shot by RCMP shortly after Russell's body was discovered. It shows the top floor of the residence, including the master bedroom, where there were no obvious signs of struggle. The camera then shows the staircase leading to the main floor, revealing a set of crutches and some eyeglasses. Russell was recovering from a broken leg at the time of her death. The video wraps up in the basement where it shows mattresses with furniture and blankets on top of them. Russell's foot, with a sock partly off, can be seen protruding from underneath the pile. The body was not shown to the jury because the judge determined the images might be too graphic for some members to handle. End quote. Fowler's DNA was at the crime scene, and witnesses testified to having seen him with Diana's car. Valerie McPherson was again called to testify. She did so in person this time. She saw another opportunity, and she took it. Valerie wrote, When I was called up as a witness, I had to walk past the animal Fowler, who was free to reach out and grab me as I walked past him. In the pretrial, the defense had not learned their lesson about Valerie's feisty attitude and willingness to speak her mind. Valerie wrote about a significant moment during her testimony. I managed to squeeze in, quote, DNA evidence doesn't lie. People do. The last word was barely out when the defense started yelling, strike that from the record. LOL. Too late. It's in the jurors' minds. They won't forget. 
even when the judge tells them to disregard what I just said. I felt like yelling fuck you animal at the killer but thought differently about it because of a previous episode, end quote. The episode she was referring to was earlier in the trial, she and Diana's friends and family noticed that Ronald Fowler had taken every opportunity he could to glare at them. They felt menacingly. Valerie was fed up. She wrote, One day he was glaring and I made a motion with my index finger across my neck staring back at him. The baby evil man didn't like that and started screaming, She's threatening me. I was almost kicked out of the whole trial by doing that. But for those who know me, they know that I have lady balls, end quote. The jury also heard about Fowler's extensive criminal record. He'd, according to reporter Chuck Polson, had, quote, 11 criminal convictions since the mid-1980s, including offenses that brought four-year sentences on two occasions, for armed robbery in 1988 and robbery in 1995. He's also been convicted of sexual assault in 1988, and break and enter, possession of property obtained by crime, taking a vehicle without the owner's consent, mischief, probation violation, theft, and theft over $5,000. Madam Justice Kay Nielsen told the jury that a previous criminal record should not mean a person is guilty of the current charge, although the record may be considered in terms of the credibility of the accused. It is unusual for a criminal record to be made known to jurors, but Fowler, under testimony Thursday, mentioned that he was on federal parole when he met Michelle Russell, daughter of the murder victim, Diana Russell. That comment apparently opened the door for Fowler's record to be read into evidence, end quote. The trial would drag on into the early months of 2006. There were more delays. At some point in the jury trial, the defense requested a break so one of Fowler's attorneys could go away to see his sick mother in Vancouver. On the day court resumed, frustrated and angry, Valerie went up to the attorney and said pointedly, I'm glad your mom is okay, end quote. At one point, a juror fell ill and the trial had to be stopped. Ronald Fowler got sick in January 2006 and there was yet another delay. Also, just before Fowler was set to testify, he was unable, as there were, quote, problems with his stress medication, end quote. What about everyone else's stress medication? Right. Like the people who are actually stressed out because of the crap that he's done. Yeah. Right? But he's not taking any responsibility for There's it. There's no responsibility at all. And he's, it's, all I'm saying is, like, you know, he ran, he's saying he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no indication of remorse there's no indication of acceptance that he's done it there's no indication that he cares yeah and just trying to drag things on right yeah. mm -hmm. what you do have to do though like if the liar's always oh, on stress medication and blah 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 you kind of have to play that game with them though because what you don't want them coming back going well it was under duress or whatever right yeah so it's a pain in the ass but you you know you have to play it out you have to play it out otherwise mm -hmm. otherwise they'll hit you for like they could appeal on those grounds, on grounds later on painful yeah and they're he's playing that right instead mm -hmm. of like giving the family some peace he's he and his legal team are playing all the games right yeah and i you know that maybe that was what had to do with the firing of the the one lawyer at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, you know, before everything went to trial, that lawyer came back to the case later on. Okay. So it's interesting. Why'd you fire him and then rehire him? You know, it's just like, all this feels like just let's cause Diana Russell's family more pain. Yeah. It's, there's, they, nobody's caring about them. No. 
During Fowler's testimony, he stuck to his story that he didn't recall murdering Diana Russell and denied having done it at all. He did, however, admit having trouble with blackouts while drinking. Fowler testified he injected a quarter gram of cocaine and drank six tall boy beers on the night in question. Fowler testified that Diana Russell thought he was, quote, a nice guy. How can you have a grudge against someone who thinks you are a nice guy, asked Fowler. She always treated me with respect. Fowler said it was Michelle Russell's behavior that caused him to make the decision to end the relationship with her just a week before Diana was murdered. According to an article by reporter Chuck Polson, quote, Fowler sobbed as he testified about his decision to end contact with his son and his son's mother. Fowler recounted a tumultuous relationship with Michelle Russell. He told the jury it was Michelle's manic depressive mood swings that made him decide to sever his relationship with her and their son. He said she would often, quote, freak out for no reason and that she once phoned the police on him. It was the hardest decision I ever had to make, said Fowler. It was too much of a roller coaster ride, too much hassle to see my son. I couldn't take the emotional stress. It wasn't doing any of us any good. I made the decision I thought was best for all of us. Look at my record. I do not have any sexual assaults on my record. Hmm, didn't we learn about one? Anyway. I have stayed in population, in prison since his arrest for 44 months. Anyone with a charge like mine would not be in population for 44 months. If I thought I did what you guys are accusing me of, I would have dealt with this a long time ago. I even stopped my lawyer from attacking Michelle because I still have concerns through her over my son because, you know, you know, I think I am a... I stand up for what I believe in and no, I never did these things, and I will stand up and tell that if it goes on for years. End quote. Blah, blah, blah. Hmm? All I hear is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, he's, okay, first of all, who cares if there's a good or a bad relationship? Right. You know, the world, we've all gone through them. Yeah. You don't go and murder somebody, no matter what happened. So, And it's just like pointing fingers at the victims yeah is exactly what he's doing you're taking absolutely abs he's taking no responsibility for she this. was the crazy one well but you you fucking murdered somebody yeah like but he he says he doesn't remember that whatever and we'll get into that in a sec here a defense expert sfu professor barry beierstein who instructs on memory and the effects of drugs and alcohol in the brain testified with the amount that fowler had to drink Fowler's blood alcohol level could have been between 0.14 and 0.18, and that the cocaine would have contributed to the loss of memory. A rebuttal witness brought by the Crown contradicted this. RCMP toxicologist Jeff Coughlin took the stand and said the amnesia defense was essentially nonsense. Coughlin said that it was unheard of to have a total blackout from drinking beer, particularly the amount Fowler claimed to have consumed on the night of Russell's rape and murder. I'm not aware of total amnesia occurring with beer, said Coughlin. Coughlin continued by stating that, in his expert opinion, a total blackout occurs from drinking large quantities of spirits and that, even then, it might not happen until blood alcohol levels reach 0.20 or 0.35. I'm no expert, but having had alcohol-related blackouts myself, I'm with Coughlin on this one. People know that I used to have a drinking problem. I would have a blackout once in a while mm -hmm. and not remember anything. P 
people would tell me what I had done later on and I'd be like, I don't remember that. Yeah, but yeah, that probably happened. <laughs> Sounds like me. Sounds like me. It was hard liquor that I had a blackout with. Yeah. And um, I don't know if anybody ever blacks out doing cocaine. I've heard that that is not the case. And I've never heard anything to the contrary. And the amount of alcohol that this guy drank, it doesn't sound like a lot that would make somebody black out. It just doesn't add up, right? No. If you blacked out, had no idea what you did, yeah. then why are you running in a car that is stolen? It does not add up. It's completely fabricated, this blackout thing. Well, the, and also, yeah, like super fabricated because if he drank only a few beer of some tall boys, by the time he gets to Vancouver, hours after, like he's got to be sort of have his wits about him by the time he's in the car. Like even if he doesn't recall parts of it, he recalls some of it. You know he does. Of course he does. And I, I yeah, I doubt that he didn't recall anything. The jury did not buy the line of goods that Fowler and his defense team were selling. After a brief deliberation, they found Ronald Leal Fowler guilty of the first-degree murder of Diana Russell. The recommended sentence given in Canada for first-degree murder is life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. From an article by Kelly Hayes on castanet.net, on May 15, 2006, quote, Fowler is convicted of first-degree murder meaning 25 years in prison and can't apply for parole until 2007. However, a clause in the criminal code says he can make a special application for early release after serving two-thirds of his sentence. End quote. Ronald Fowler was sent to a medium-security prison which infuriated Valerie and others in Diana's family. Valerie told reporter Wayne Moore, quote, I didn't think this happened in Canada. I thought convicted murderers went right to maximum security. She continued, he's a big guy, he's probably running the place by now. Valerie also mentioned further concern for family, saying, quote, the facility he is being housed in is near my cousin and he's not happy about that, end quote. Valerie told another paper after a letter to the Correctional Service of Canada asking about the rationale to put Fowler in medium security, quote, this was his third federal offense, and he was actually on parole on conditional sentence at the time he raped and murdered my mother. It's not a self-defense murder. This was a 61-year-old woman who was recovering from knee surgery. He put her through a lot of pain and agony before he murdered her, end quote. In the same article, we learn that in November of 2006, quote, a Sun Media report revealed that 30% of inmates recently convicted of first and second degree murder dodged doing hard time despite a mandatory two years in max policy adopted in 2001. CSC had quietly amended the rule to give wardens discretion to grant exemptions in September 2005, leading to a spike in the number who avoided max. After the report, Public Safety Minister Stockwell Day instructed CSC to quit playing fast and loose with the rule and said he would review it, end quote. So Stockwell Day, conservative member of parliament, public safety minister at the time, says, okay, let's not do that anymore. But we've been doing it for years up to this point. Why is it that someone like Ronald Leal Fowler, who was accused of first-degree murder, after having beaten, raped, hogtied, and strangled the grandmother of his child, why is that guy in medium security prison? Is it money? If anyone should be in 
max it's these sort of cases yeah like like what what are we like holding holding them for something right and honestly money money right these mm. people should be kept in max period this isn't somebody who like fudged the numbers on his the accountancy form to no. take some money exactly right if anyone deserves max it's this guy yep from day one, right? Like, not even a consideration when you, after you've been found guilty of that. Like, shouldn't even be thought of. Fowler's defense filed an appeal arguing, among other things, that as Fowler was of indigenous heritage, his trial had been unfair as there were no natives selected in the jury pool. The appeal was denied. Valerie continues to fight to keep Ronald Fowler in prison, feeling that life should be life, especially when the murder victim is a complete innocent like Diana Russell. After a quick break, we'll hear from Colin Luxinger, Diana Russell's grandson, as he shares some of his feelings around this tragic case. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts? This is a personal tragedy for them. And mm -hmm. they're, they're like, I'm listening to the story and hearing the sort of firsthand and and for them, it's about, you know, the grandmother, their mother mm -hmm. getting justice, very personal level. But it's important for us as a society yeah, because they're kind of proxy in a position that none of us ever want to be in. Right. And, um, you know, nobody will truly understand how they feel. No. Right. And and I bet that they wouldn't want anyone to truly understand because they know no, how, they'd, they'd they have know to how have... horrible it is. Yeah. So maybe hopefully in us trying to understand is enough for them mm -hmm. but you know we can people can pontificate about what should be done with criminals but unless you are the victim's family you have no real insight right no i mean it's it's tough but it's um because you know me like it, it's uh i'm yeah i do think people can change and, and everything but at, at the same time when victims families are talking you have to keep very open ears about the experience. Because who is justice really for? Is it for society? Or should the family really be taken into consideration? If you think about this, right? Mm -hmm. It's immediately for the family. Right. But what justice system has to do is the, immediately, the immediate thing for the family needs to build into the longer term for society. And sure. you can't be at the same time knee-jerk and build precedents that aren't feasible long-term, I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, like, I know the fa families do the victim impact statements, so they're talking about the impact the crime has had on their lives. Yeah. But what impact did those actual statements make on the sentencing that happens, or the way this person uh, is uh, brought to justice? Like, I don't think it makes anything like there's already these, it's kind of like, well, we'll hear it because that's what we do. And the person needs to hear how this affected them. But it's like the guy already knows how long he's going to go to jail because of the sentencing recommendations. But I think for me, mm -hmm. it's not just for the person who did it to hear it. Yeah. I think it's for the, it's, yeah, it's for them it's, too. It's for the court to hear it mm, as but, well, because, because the court, the jury, the judges, the whole system is is working mm -hmm. and it's just as for me it's just important for them to hear the impact because but what difference does it make once everything is done is what i'm asking like if the sentencing 
recommendations are already finished. Like we know how long this guy's going to jail right. if he's convicted of this. The end. Like, it, yes, the family needs to be heard. I agree 100%. It is for the family to good. They need to get this well, out. With the courts, maybe it helps with the next one. Maybe. Who knows, you know? Maybe. Of, you know, you you do a light sentence and you hear an impact statement and you're like, you know, I think people need that brutal truth in their face yeah. of, how, of how people have been affected. Well, I'm looking forward to our next bit because I'll be interviewing Colin Luxinger and we, we had a couple of conversations about what his family went through. So this next part of the show will be entirely just Colin and I. With us for the interview portion of this show is Diana Russell's grandson and son of Valerie McPherson, who shared much of her thoughts and writings with us. And he's Colin Luxinger. Thank you for coming, Colin. Thanks for having me. So even 20 years later, this must be still difficult to talk about. Um, I'm sure it is. Um, what was it that prompted you and your mom to trust Dark Poutine with your grandmother's story? Uh, you know, I've been a fan of the show for for a few years and i know how you write it and how you and matthew say it and it's respectable most of all i know the community the younger yard i know how great people they are respectable uh i was just trying to vent that's all it was and uh, it turned into this and that's just how amazing everything is i, I saw your vent on the younger yard and i thought you know what this guy it seems like he needs to talk so this is kind of the perfect time for me to offer something like this. Well, thank you, because, you know, it, it It feels it good to be able to have my grandma's story out there, and especially the first episode uh, when you told her writings. And it, just thank you. It's good. Uh, first, let's talk about your grandmother. How close were you with Diana? You know, I was close as I could be, maybe not. I wish I could have been closer. You know, she lived in Kelowna. I lived with my mom in Fort McLeod. So really only got to see her a few times a year, but uh, I loved it. I looked forward to it. So you were 12 years old when she passed. So yeah, um, still pretty young. What were your first memories of your grandma? Do you have anything that you kind of hold on to there? Well, you know, unfortunately I've uh, had a life where I've abused drugs and I've made a lot of bad choices and uh, I'm not left with very memory memories of anything uh, but I I do have memory with with my grandma in it and it's uh, it's at Christmas and you know I'm sitting down I get a I got a keyboard this little electronic keyboard and uh, I'm playing it and I remember just my grandma sitting on the couch and uh, you know she's smiling She's so warm. There was one thing you said to me before that kind of colored that memory, though. Yeah, it's it's shared. It's shared with uh, it's shared with the man who took her life. It's she's she's there, and so is he. And I remember her and our whole family being nice to him, and most of all, me. I remember liking him. You know, I called him uncle. Mm -hmm. I embraced him, and you know it's just it's just it's just to think that my last memory my last surviving memory of my grandmother is is, is shared with him it's, it's, yeah and you know it sucks uh, was there something that stood out to you about your grandmother's character like what was she really like i mean she shared a bit with us in her writing and stuff like that but um what was she really like oh she was 
I say I saw her. I saw her as kind of like the mob boss of the family, you know. When I, <laughs> when when there was family reunions, it's usually Christmas time. Grandma was there. Uh, I just saw her as she was in charge. You know, she was strong. She was uh, courageous. She was doing things before women were supposed to do things. You know. Yeah. And uh, she led the way, and she was just an amazing person. You, see, you could tell, you could probably tell by her little bit of writings that you read out loud. Yeah. So she was, she was the family matriarch for sure. Well, that's how I saw her. You know, grandma says something, and you do it. I had a grandma like that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where were you when you first found out about your grandmother's death? You know, I don't. That time too is just such a, it's such a blur because. We're back from Weyburn from my great grandparents' funeral, and next thing I remember, I was in driving back from St. Paul to Fort McLeod. I know Grandma's Grandma's gone. I couldn't comprehend it though. And uh, my older brother, Derek, he was working at IGA at the time in St. Paul. He just recently told me this, and he told his manager, you know, our grandma was killed, and this man manager didn't believe him until he started crying you know and then he left wow because my dad lived in saint paul with my brother i lived in formal car with my mom so i remember them all driving back my brother being there with me to fort mcleod and that was a little strange in itself and then i remember being in that a and w in fort mcleod uh talking about going to grandma's funeral my brother explaining yeah and and you ultimately didn't go to her funeral. No, I uh, I didn't go. I I was being selfish at the time. You know, I was just a little twelve year old kid. My friend just got Diablo too. I wanted to play it with him. I didn't want to go on this eight hour road trip to see family and it'd be sad. And I just I didn't comprehend what happened. I couldn't understand. And uh, my brother he explained something to me that's like it's 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 just stuck with me. He explained to me that we're all in this like this pyramid, right? And I'm at the bottom. And if I don't go to this funeral, I'm removing myself from that pyramid and just making the whole structure weaker and myself too. And like it happened, you know, mm. I made myself weaker, especially, but I separated myself. Do you feel like that has colored your part in the family and that kind of stuff? Have you forgiven yourself for that? I have. I mean, there's still residual guilt. I've forgiven myself for the most part. You know, I'm just a kid. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. Well, yada yada but it has i feel it has colored myself with the family it's not that my family doesn't like me it's just that i feel like i feel like they don't you know and i yeah. just i know i know that if i just reach out and talk everything will be all good but there's just that always that part of me that that thinks since i did that i'm always not going to be welcome like we don't even, we've never even, I don't know if it still happened after that, but like we used to go to my Andy Patty's for Christmas. You know, this is just one of the many things that changed. Like we didn't do that anymore after that. Because it was too painful for everybody. I suppose. Yeah. So do you remember how your mom reacted when she heard about her mother's passing? I don't remember my mom being anything but strong. Never crying, never once showing me her tears. She just, she was so strong and she was the one that stepped up and she's doing all the work to try to keep him in court, keep him parole. I know now that she, of course, you know, her mother was just killed. Of course, she was busting up inside, but she's just the type of person that wouldn't let her kids see that. What did you think when you heard that someone, A, had killed your grandmother and B, that it was Ronald Fowler, this guy who you knew? I mean, for years, I just, 
for years I couldn't understand. I still couldn't comprehend. Like I knew that the guy who I thought was my uncle had, had killed my grandma. Right. I didn't know. I didn't know why, how later on I discovered how, and, uh, it's just, you know, it's painful. It really doesn't matter who, who did it. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's someone you love is gone. That's, yeah. that's it. It was someone you love was taken from you. That's what it is. Someone you trusted did it. I mean, hmm. pain is pain. And Michelle was the one who was closest to Fowler because he was her son's father, Brandon's father. And apparently you said that she didn't really take it that well, obviously, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, she obviously probably to this day still feels the guilt that she was the one that indirectly, you know, caused grandma's death. Of course, that's not true mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think anyone blames her but it's just like just like my case i don't think anyone blames me but yeah you know she from little bits and pieces because just over the years you just hear from family how she's doing and it's just you know she needs help but she doesn't want to she doesn't want to get it brandon didn't know uh until he was uh how old 18 around his 18th birthday he changed his name on facebook to uh fowler's last name from russell dash fowler and i i messaged him and i was like yo what's what's up with that i was like what are you doing that for and he's like well what do you mean and i'm like do you know what that you know you're representing with that name and he's like oh you know it's yada yada and it's my dad and i'm like well do you know what your what your dad what your dad did and he said that if people have been telling him different things, like, you know, he is a drug dealer or this or that, basically everything but the truth. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, I just, I, I, I told him, I decided to tell him, I said, no, your dad, your dad killed our grandma and he did it in a, a horrific way. Yeah. So how do you feel about that today? Like, did your family react poorly or? Well, I don't know really how they, how they reacted. And frankly, I don't care. I, <laughs> I think it, he deserves to know. He mm -hmm. deserves to know. And, you know, he. I feel like we can look at him and see his dad. And yeah. may, maybe because of that, he's been outcasted a little bit. And I just, he doesn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't know why, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I was feeling in that moment that I told him. And uh, so I talked to him occasionally, just check in on him. And, uh, so you stay in contact with him now? I try, yeah. He's living, yeah. I think right now he's living with our cousin, Kareen. That's my Auntie Patty's daughter. Mm -hmm. So he's doing, he's doing a lot better. At least I hope he, I hope he's doing good. Is he 22 now? I should be around that, yeah. Wow. You mentioned that there were some strange occurrences and you, in a, in a couple of messages back and forth, you said you're not sure if it was your 12-year-old brain uh, conflating things or not, or... Um, maybe someone was seeing a ghost, maybe they weren't, or maybe that's the way you uh, took what was going on. Of course, like, uh, maybe that was me putting everything together in the way my brain did. But I think I remember my aunties, my mom talking about Michelle seeing uh, my grandma's ghost one night when she woke up, just like hovering above her. And then a few nights later, uh, they started burning all the things that were involved in my grandma's death, like uh, a rocking chair that was used by him, uh, things like that. And uh, just sitting in my, my Auntie Patty's basement with my cousins, just, uh, watching the, the flames, you know, flicker against the wall, mm. hearing my aunties outside, just 
crying and then saw you know laughing and is i don't know if that's why they did it because of uh, the strange things but yeah i mean it could have been a catharsis too yeah it was a powerful moment for me at least you know and you mentioned a book um harry potter's the goblet of fire the goblet of fire laying right next to me harry potter what was uh, the significance of that to you why do you think that stood out it was just the flames i guess just the Mm. flickering and then the the i mean now it is when i when i I reflect on it you know maybe it stood out because i felt like everything was just you know burning around me and this uh you can see it reflect off the walls you know yeah and uh but that (laughs) it was just so weird to me that that book was just sitting right there because of course it would be so you mentioned to me that your goal is to forgive Ronald Fowler, and it's not to be his buddy or anything like that, but it's to release yourself so you can heal from this. Absolutely. You know, when you forgive, when you forgive someone for something they've done, yeah, no matter how evil it is, it's, it's not about forgiving them as a person, you know, it's about forgiving their actions for controlling you for controlling me this long. Mm-hmm. I want, I want to forgive him. I want to forgive him. So I, can move on and i don't want to harbor this hatred this this anger to him you know it's not it's not for him it's it's for me for my family and you've had obviously had a rough time you mentioned earlier you struggled with drugs and and that kind of thing and you feel like you're the black sheep and is that changing as you talk about this stuff and maybe look deeper at it as an adult (laughs) You know, yeah, it's 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 changing. I'm uh, 34 now, and I, uh, it's only been a few years where I actually started started caring about myself and started kind of like seeking that love in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, I remember it was a, a birthday at my, at my mom's, and this was I think probably around 10 10 years or so ago. I just finished house arrest. I think I just finished. Is that right before, right after my house arrest? I was sitting at my mom's in Lethbridge and I was just feeling like shit. And uh, my mom brought me a birthday cake and she started singing to me and uh, started crying. You know, I felt I felt it in that moment. And in that, that was like the seed that that really started it off. Thinking that this this isn't over with my family. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I have my auntie Patty on, um, you know, I have her cell. I could talk to her anytime, you know, I have, I have means to contact my family. Yeah. So you separated yourself from them before. Absolutely. It was, uh, I mean, since then, since like a kid growing up, I've just been so angry and like I started doing crimes and I just, I separated myself from them because I felt like I was alone, you know? Yeah, I know that feeling. Yes, I do. And it's 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 so ironic that you, when you feel like you're so alone and you have all this love, but you feel it, so you just you're you just got these blinders on, right? Mm-hmm. You're yep. just like <laughs> you just wallow in 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 this this self pity. It's funny when we we become open to to looking at what's really going on. We see like, wow, I was really wrong about all that stuff. <laughs> oh, absolutely, right? And then uh, there's 
people in your life that that uh that you don't think would become as good as friends as they are but then you like open yourself up and you start like Mm -hmm. seeking that love and you realize that you had like a best friend right in front of you that you didn't even pay attention to you know what i mean yeah it's amazing like when sort of the blinders fall off like you said Mm -hmm. yeah but it all starts with that with that believing that you're worth it. So your mom calls Ronald Fowler the devil and rotten Ronnie and all that kind of stuff. She's still pretty outspoken about how she feels about him. Well, she has to be because uh, other than you and, and you know, Matthew, it's, it hasn't been spoken about. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like she ha- I feel like she feels she has to. Yeah. And that's why this story is so compelling to me, because with most news sites, like I mentioned in the first episode, with most news sites or any organization, the case ends with this guy being convicted and locked up. But it isn't like that for you and your family at all. It's not like that for any family that goes through this. What have you guys been through around this stuff with him asking for escorted temporary absences as part of his, quote, correctional plan you know it's 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 bullshit you know i'm not against the idea of him you know reforming and and getting better if he did it while remembering what he's done yeah because he's doing all this while still claiming that he he doesn't remember what happened so he claims he doesn't remember what happened and yeah. he denies doing it at all. He denies everything. Deny, deny, mm-hmm. deny. Yeah. And maybe he's denied it so much that he's convinced himself that he actually didn't do it. Yeah. But it's just, it feels us, it, at least me, I, I, I probably hate him the least and I still hate him so much, mm-hmm. you, you know? And just hearing that, fills me with such a absolute rage that he can just he gets he gets to walk and we we're still trapped in that in that prison you know Mm -hmm. we're still in that cage so he's he's winning yeah but that's where the forgiveness comes in right absolutely that's where it comes in because no matter what happens with him i am responsible for what i feel right and Mm if i if i let him if any of us let him keep making us feel these things just by his existence, then he wins. Yeah. And we can't let that happen. Well, I, I hope you're able to find what you need to find some relief from that for sure, because uh, it's a painful thing. I had to forgive the guy who uh, tried to abduct me when I was a kid. And people were like, what? How are, why are you forgiving this guy? You should be angry at him. It's like, it's not for him. It's for me so I can be free of him so he doesn't rent space or so he doesn't own space in my head rent free kind of thing. This is the thing people don't get because how many nights like have you stayed up just mulling over the guilt and the things that you could have done or feeling that it was your fault or mm-hmm. or hating him or just thinking of scenarios that he'd be hurt or you're yep. dead or you've, you've wasted so much time and energy and and days just thinking about it and how is that right he's not thinking about that if anything he's smiling thinking about the shit he's done 
Or he doesn't even remember me. Or he doesn't remember. Or he claims not to remember. Like, wrong. Right. So, yeah. so, like, so why? So forgive him so you can sleep. And now you're sleeping. And that's what it's all about, right? Yep. I sleep pretty good now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what that's what it's about. So um, you and your brother, you mentioned to me <laughs> in the last conversation that we had that you and your brother have kind of bonded over a creative <laughs> online project. And I, I checked it out for myself. And it's really cool. We were chatting while we were uh, both of us were there and your brother. Uh, can you tell, tell us a bit about what this project is? Well, it's his, it's his project. I've, I just help out. It's, uh, it's an online stream to his, his saltwater coral reef tanks. He's, uh, he's been into fish and aquariums since we've been kids and he's cultivated that skill into these beautiful, uh, tanks that are filled with just these wonderful creatures. And, uh, it's his dream. It's his goal really just to give anybody that needs it a way to uh, relax and chill so if you need it and you want to listen to some relaxing music watch some fishies play a little interactive game with the users you can head over to uh, twitch.tv slash rams reef and uh, just hang out with us i'm i'm bielza hugs on there bielza hugs <laughs> yeah you, you could usually find me on there yeah I'm fartled. You'll see. It's so funny. So <laughs> funny when I saw your name. And then you're, you explained it to me. And I was so out because I thought it was like a slow fart. But I was right. way wrong. I was way wrong. <laughs> Startled by a fart. Startled by a fart. Fartled. That's hilarious. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so twitch.tv slash Ramsreef. And I'll put that in the show notes for this episode. I put it in the last one and people are probably like wondering... What yeah, the what heck? the heck? <laughs> but I thought if it's there more than once, maybe it'll it'll get some clicks and that kind of thing. So <laughs> I appreciate that. And I, I know he's gonna appreciate it too. Yeah, like I was I was watching the the uh I have two screens here and I was watching the fish tank and listening <laughs> to the music while I was writing last uh last episode. So it was kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really nice. nice. Yeah. Like so said, there... those those cameras are up twenty four seven. So any any time you just pop in, and uh, even the nighttime cams, there's like it focuses on like the shrimp cam. So there's always yeah. some time to relax. You can click on different things and and see different views and that. Uh, yeah, you can click. You could change the camera angles, the music. There's like a little Pokemon type game where you can play, where like fish come on the screen and you could try to catch them and then fight them and stuff with other people. It's fun. It's pretty. He's put a lot of work and effort into this. So if uh, anyone that wants to come check it out, could be to come check it out and hang out with us. So is there anything you feel like we've missed that you think people should know about your grandma or any anything else around this? Uh, no, uh, like you guys have done such an amazing job so far. Um, the first episode is incredibly hard, obviously, to listen to, but it's just... The way you, you know, read in my grandma's writings and really brought her back to me for a second. Mm. <laughs> just God bless um, you guys. Thank you so much. And when, uh, when, Matt, when Matthew said in the beginning that he's just going to focus on doing a good job, I, I believed him. And I, believe, yep. I believed you. And uh, thank you. Oh. Thank, thank you so much. I have nothing but gratitude for you. Thank you. It's. I mean, it's... It's the least I could do. I just 
you know, like I say, I saw you guys hurting. I saw you hurting in that post, and I thought now's my opportunity to do something. So, well, you done did it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm glad. It makes me feel good to to know that I've had a positive impact on people because I haven't always been that kind of person. So, I'm the same way. I uh, I try, I, I try, and it feels good because yeah. Yeah. It feels so, good to be the opposite. <laughs> right? Is there anything you'd like to say to uh to other families who are just freshly dealing with something like you've been through or like any words of wisdom? Well, I don't I don't know about wisdom, but uh I don't know. There's nothing really to, that anyone can say. They you know, they say time heals everything. That's 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 bullshit because it's mm. It's time with action of reflection, meaning you have to actively look into yourself and combat these feelings that are coming of guilt, of loneliness, of hatred, anything that's going to keep you from feeling that happiness again, because that happiness is really what they're trying to take from you. They're, you know, they can take all your loved ones and they can hurt you in so many ways but they'll never take your faith that something anything is going to be better you know they're never going to take your hope of waking up the next day and they're never going to take your love because there is someone around that loves you and you are loved don't give up don't let them win because you being sad and being miserable and being trapped in the cage like i have and like we have for so long that's not that's not winning. Yeah, that's no that's not living, really. That's, that's not living. That's just waking up. That's just existing. Yeah, doing time in your own skin is kind of nasty. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's going to it's not going to get better. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's not. Time that when people say that, it's 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 always going to be there. That hurt is always going to be there. You adapt. You lift your chin up and you keep fucking smiling yeah. and that's how you get through it and you will be happy again well i want to thank you colin luxinger for participating in this episode and uh for uh, being so honest with us and about your feelings and sharing some things that i'm sure weren't easy thanks for me that was a real emotional experience and to hear that level of pain in somebody's voice coming, you know, through my headphones yeah. was tough. Like, I really am so grateful that Colin was brave enough to openly share as much as he did with us. This stuff takes bravery. It really does. This is like the uh, the worst thing yeah. that happened to them. It is, it is the, their right? worst day. And yeah. they're, they're sharing this story for... A lot of good reasons and the, the bravery is huge right? and and valerie uh valerie valerie mcpherson who is colin's mom she's joined the yumber yard as well so that's really really cool like i feel like um they, they i can tell that they're really grateful that we're doing this and it it means so much that we can like i i want i want them to know that we're trying our best you know, like we're trying our best to do a good job here. A good job. Like I really am. Yeah. 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 And we hope we did. We do.
Um, how much time is enough time, Matthew? How much, you know, you're, how, what, so you say in Canada, it's a life sentence. Sure, you're out of jail, but you are still under a life sentence. If there's, if you do something, there's usual conditions to your release. You can get sent back and just stay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, in this case, I think, you know, it, what is enough time should not even be considered mm. if you don't see somebody taking responsibility. Right. Um, somebody who's not contrite, not somebody who's not, um, you know, hadn't been making scenes and leering at people through the entire court case. Right. right? Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, the European Union, you're not allowed to put people in jail for life because it's considered inhumane because it takes away the idea that somebody can change. Yeah. Right. Or be sorry, or people can forgive all of that. Yeah. It's important, but you know, for me, if somebody's just still saying they didn't do it and deflecting blame, then sorry, buddy, but it's, there's no consideration for you until you can get somewhere. Right. Right. And in this case, I, I see none of that. Yeah. And nobody should be considering doing it because he's shown no remorse for any of this. Yeah. Right? I'm sorry. Like, you lose. Do you think a life sentence should be a life sentence? If somebody is, sent, like, depending on the severity, there should be obvious parameters. Like, Paul Bernardo's never getting out of jail. Right. He is, but it's not because of what his conviction was. It's because he was later convicted as a dangerous offender. Yeah. So it's like we have to have that extra level of stuff to keep somebody behind bars if they've done something horrendous. Yeah, I think we need flexibility. Yeah. Somehow, right? And It's hard. Like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Should people be in forever? I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, what's humane? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't talk about hope for anything, but that's about the same time. It's like, well, again, you can look at people and go, yeah, well, you're hopeless. Yeah. Right. Um, again, this guy hasn't taken any responsibility for what he's done. What pisses me off is you have people in jail longer for like, <coughs> you know, being caught smoking a joint. Yeah. Right. Like, like, not so much here in Canada, but yeah. Yeah. But in the past you have, um, yeah. but all of this, you know, it's, uh, I don't think you should be going anywhere. No. It, there's, there's not even the beginning of him getting, uh, he shouldn't be in yeah. my humble opinion. Yeah. That's just our opinion. Mine too. And just an aside before we go, Valerie McPherson mentioned that on continuing with her mother's passion, genealogy, and working on their family tree, she discovered a relationship with yet another subject of this podcast. Apparently, on the French side of the family, they are related to Marie-Josephette Corivo from episode 216, The Woman Convicted and Hanged for Killing Her Husband in 1763. Again, it gives me pause to think about how Canada, although large in mass, seems to be a small country in a lot of other ways. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 236, The Murder of Diana Russell, part two. That's right, it's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK. ETN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okay, here's our first voicemail for this week. Let's have a listen. 
Hi, guys. It's Mandy calling you from Simcoe, Ontario. Just wanted to say I absolutely love listening to your podcast. Um, I just finished the one about the tidal waves on the East Coast in Newfoundland. And I just wanted to call to let you know a funny story. I'm from Newfoundland. I'm from a town called Harbor Grace. Um, And my grandfather was a little boy when the tsunami hit. And I remember him telling his children and his grandchildren that he remembers during the cleanup that there was seaweed on the altar of the church. So that's kind of neat. Anyways, guys, take care. And keep doing what you do. Cheers. Wow, thanks. That's really neat. I love to hear like little anecdotes like that, like yeah. um, seaweed on the altar of the church. It's a little thing, mm. but it really brings those, like the effect of what happened there yeah. home. Yeah. It's like, yeah, so there was so much water in the church, there was seaweed on the altar of the church. That's... It's really, really, yeah, it's really strange. It, those little things... If pe- when people share those with us, that to me that's really meaningful, and those are the kind of things that you know, my grandmother shared with uh, us about the Halifax explosion way back to episode four. Um, you know, she shared with like she hadn't been uh, to school yet that morning because she was helping her father chop wood and carry it into the house, and when the explosion happened, and when she went to school, there was a big iron. Uh, I-beam across her desk at school. Mm. And had she been there, she might have been or probably would have been killed. And my father thus would never have been born. I would have never been Michael Brown. I would have been someone else because I'm adopted. But Mm. really interesting, right? (laughs) Like strange how like all these little tiny anecdotes. Tiny little stories. Yeah, they they are really meaningful. Give some texture as well. Yeah, exactly. So thank you for sharing that with us. Let's listen to our second voicemail. Hey, fellas, it's Great Big Pete. I'm calling you after having returned from St. Pierre and Miquelon, where I visited this gallery, this fantastic gallery. And in this gallery, it's kind of like in this separate little room where they have the guillotine, the only guillotine to ever be used in North America for an execution. Holy friggin' crap, was it ever cool to see um, I tried to bribe the guy that works there at the counter to, you know, let me in the room where the guillotine is, but they wouldn't let me in, and they wouldn't let me do that no matter how much I paid them. In fact, I paid him like 300 euros or something like that, and he still didn't let me in, and he didn't give me my money back. Kind of shitty of him, now that I think of it. Anywho, um, I took pictures of it, and uh, I I made a little thing, you know, where I pretended to be the guillotine. And I was like, there, that was my impression of it. Um, (laughs) Anyways. Yeah, so it was really neat to uh, kind of be in the the place where you talked about the, this horrible murder, and I actually... You know, talked to some people from St. Pierre, and they actually showed me, you know, where the person was, where he was murdered, and all that other good stuff. So it was really, uh, really, really neat. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. And it was also cool to happen to be driving through Newfoundland when learning about the floods in Newfoundland uh, after that big uh, giant tsunami and stuff in uh, 1929. Stuff. So. 
crazy. Good that you guys are reporting from coast to coast. I love that. Your podcast is amazing, and I love you both. Uh, hugs and kisses to Steve there. Well, thanks, Great Big Pete. It's always good to hear from GBP. I think Great Big Pete is becoming a character on the show. I love <laughs> his voicemails. Great Big Pete's great. They are really good. Yeah. So keep calling us Great he, Big Pete. He had me laughing, you know, a few weeks ago, Justin and I went on a, a Pirates of the Caribbean sort of splurge. Yeah. And I think one of the last ones, he's going to be, he's on the guillotine and it, it get hit, it get hit, gets hit by a cannon and it's flying around and, and the guillotine goes up and almost cuts his head and then goes back down as it flips around and goes up. And my husband and I were laughing hysterically. Oh, I The one it. good thing about pirates is like the slapstick's fantastic. The slapstick. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Johnny Depp is actually quite good at that whole slapstick thing. Yeah, no, He's like a Buster Keaton in that way. Yeah, I like those movies. I don't care that they got bad reviews. Yeah, right? You, you had fun. Thanks, GBP. Thank you. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 877 We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. All right, it is time for Patreon and Donut Money donors. We, we don't have any Donut Money donors this week, but we do have three patrons. First up, we have Diane McMartin. I don't know where Diane is from, Matthew. Where on earth is Diane McMartin from? It, it could be someplace that's either far away or close by. I don't know. I see the smoke coming out of your ears as you think. She's from Jefferson City. What Jefferson City, where? Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. Oh, okay. And what does she do in Jefferson City, Missouri? What on earth happens there? She owns a dry cleaning company. Oh, she owns a dry cleaning company. Yeah. Why is it that immediately when you said dry cleaning company, I thought of George Jefferson? From the Jeffersons. <laughs> I love that show when I was a kid. Like he was a dry cleaning mogul moving yeah. on up to the east side. Such like, an awesome show. It was a good show. And it, it really did address, I mean, it was a spinoff of All in the Family, which was uh, about racist yeah. ideas. And it was a spinoff of that show in sort of the other side of things because George yeah. was pretty racist himself. Yeah. So it, it was really fascinating. I think of it as early days of... You know, people trying to integration and, yeah. and showing black people on TV. Yeah, I think the shows like that you can judge them now, but I think they were important at the time. Mm -hmm. But anyway, she's from Jefferson City. Yep, and that I I didn't know it existed until I just looked it up now. Actually, it's funny that it's Jefferson City and we're talking about the Jeffersons. It's not far from St. Louis. St. Louis, meet me and in the Ozark, St. Louis. And the Louis. Ozark Plateau. The Ozark Plateau. That always sounds so uh, exotic to me, but it's really not. Ozark Plateau. So thank you, Diane Thanks, McMartin. Diane. And uh, I need some a stain taken out of my shirt. If you can reach me and <laughs> let me know how to do that, that'd be great. Next, we have Ann Kirk. And Ann is from New Albany, Indiana, in the United States of America. Albany. New Albany, Indiana. New Albany. Yeah. New Albany sounds like uh, better than Albany, New York, because it's new. <laughs> I like newer things. It's Even new. though New York is a new thing. New Albany. New Albany. New so Albany. what does Ann Kirk do in New Albany, Indiana? In New Albany? Yeah. New Albany. Okay. 
That's really hard to say. New Albany. New Albany. Yeah. It's it, like New Orleans. It comes like New Albany. Yeah, because there's yeah, it's the yeah, it's interesting. She's a personal shopper. Oh, I would I would love to have a personal shopper. That would require me to have money. If somebody comes and just she like figures out what will look good on you. Like a stylist. Yeah. And, yeah, oh, I yeah. would love that because I am the worst dresser. I Can dress... you please come and help Mike? Yeah, I need some help. <laughs> Matthew, you, your new your new look is good. I like your Yeah, new I've look. decided to try again. Yeah. No, it looks good. <laughs> like you've got you've got it going on now. Whereas me, it's like, oh, I'm still wearing the Jaws t-shirt that I've had for 20 years. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> My wardrobe needs help. Send help. And maybe Anne will know somebody who is a she personal will. shopper here she in will. Surrey and maybe she give will. me a hand. She has a big network. Yeah. Uh, and last but not least, we have Hope Williams, and she is from Elizabethtown in Kentucky. Elizabethtown. Elizabethtown in Kentucky. Named after Queen Elizabeth? Is it? I Probably. don't know. It could be. I mean, I don't know. Maybe was the U.S. really that... Friendly with Elizabeth, Elizabethan time? No, it might have been. There's lots of places. Yeah. Right? Well, there's actually a movie called Elizabethtown, which is interesting. It's a 2005 American romantic tragic comedy written by Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe, who uh, also did one of my favorite movies, which was, uh, um, oh gosh. <laughs> Which is what? My brain just left me. Like it seriously did. Um, almost famous. Almost famous was the one I was talking about. Okay. But anyway. Um, yeah. So interesting. What is going on there in Elizabethtown? What does she do there? She's an actress. She was in the movie. Oh, she was in that movie? Yeah, she... She, everyone thinks it was Susan Sarandon, but it wasn't. Oh, it, it was Hope. It was Hope. She looks like Susan Sarandon. Well, good Sarandon. for her. Yeah. But, you know, she did, she knew people didn't know her name, so she just used Susan's name. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess. That would make sense. Yeah. I should just ca start calling myself Tom Cruise. Right, because she, you know, she, she doesn't have a big ego about her. She's like, I can uh, do a great job acting and let other people take the credit. So this is Tom Cruise for Dark Poutine. Yeah, like... And this Have is, you heard Tom Cruise's new podcast, and, Dark Poutine? And this is Catherine Deneuve, the co-host. <laughs> Tom Cruise. I am Tom Cruise, and this is Catherine I Deneuve. I identify as Catherine Deneuve. <laughs> Patty, Patty. Oh, my. I feel love. Remember she did that album with Malcolm McLaren? Yes. Yeah. Whose grave I saw. Yes. Malcolm McLaren's grave at, uh, at Highgate. Yep. That was quite interesting. Like, they have his death mask as part of his... Uh, yeah. His tombstone. Oh, his funeral's big. People lined the streets. Of course they did. And threw flowers. He was a cultural icon. He was. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for playing Susan Sarandon okay. in Elizabethtown. There you go. You did a good job. All right. That's it for patrons and Donut Money donors. Thank you, folks. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Thank you again so much to Colin Luxinger and his mom, Valerie McPherson, for sharing all the material that went into the making of these two episodes. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. So without further ado, until next time, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye. Bye, everybody.